0: Alright, let's take our Bibles again as we turn to Mark's Gospel in chapter 8 this morning. <clears throat> All of us are blessed with some measure of visual acuity. Nobody here is blind. But as time moves forward, we may need visual aids to improve our vision. I was 41 when I needed to get bifocals for reading, and last year I. Uh, graduated at trifocals to better adjust uh, working with my computer. Some of us have impairments that caused us to get glasses or contacts at a younger age. Yet we all can be thankful that we have physical sight. The Bible relates to us, though, another kind of sight, the ability to see things that are spiritual, the truth that God reveals in his word. And we cannot perceive this truth without first coming to Christ as our Savior. And until that point, we're really spiritually blind. We're incapable of perceiving God's truth. Our spiritual eyes are open when we get saved. And unlike physical sight that fades over time, our spiritual sight should improve. We perceive more and more who God is and how his followers should live. This is the point that Mark is presenting in the next section of his gospel. The disciples need to see Jesus uh, for who he is and what they need to do to follow him more closely and faithfully. Now this middle section of Mark is a journey of spiritual perception for these disciples, and it begins here with the healing of a blind man. It ends in chapter ten with the healing of another blind man, and then we have the uh, uh, the last week of Christ's life, beginning in verse, uh, excuse me, chapter eleven. Uh, the first healing here that we read earlier is an illustration of the disciples' lack of clear vision and the need of Jesus to change their perception to open up their understanding about who he is. And we find here that they do believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, but their understanding of what that means is skewed. Jesus now will be guiding them to a proper understanding of who he is and what he must do to fulfill God's program of redemption, that's going to open up a whole nother ball game for them. Now, in each chapter, the Lord is going to inform them of His mission and of His passion. The disciples are going to be confused each time, and the Lord is going to teach them about the nature of His death and what true discipleship is all about. And a disciple is going to be willing to deny himself, to suffer affliction, and to humbly serve the Lord Jesus Christ without lording it over others. Now, this section also begins the Lord's journey down to Jerusalem. He's going to go up north toward Caesarea Philippi, and he's going to proceed from that point back down south over a period of several weeks before he finally comes to the capital city of Jerusalem. We're going to find the phrase, the way, very often here. It's going to crop up numerous times. It's going to describe their route, but also the way a disciple of Christ should believe and act and serve. So we're going to see that marked a number of times in this particular section. Now today we're going to observe that first healing and how it applies to the perception of Christ's disciples. It illustrates really their first seeing of Jesus as the Messiah, but it also indicates they have not come fully uh, to understand what that actually means. Their perception of his mission is clouded, it needs to be cleared up, it needs to change And we too need to see Jesus clearly and be willing to grow in our understanding of him that we might better reflect his person in our lives. So let's ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, once again, we ask you to open our eyes to help us see and understand clearly your word this morning, what it teaches us. We realize, Lord, that we come to faith and the Lord Jesus Christ, and that opens our eyes to the truth of who he is and what he's done to save us. But Lord, we also know there's a whole lot of other things in the word of God that our eyes need to be open to, that we need to understand and apply to our lives. And this is really a lifelong process. So Lord, help us to see that and realize it and uh, take it to heart this morning by applying this truth to our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the first thing I want you to see this morning is in the story of this healing of a blind man, and here we see an illustration of this gradual perception, this gradual coming to full sight. Now, the setting here is in a town called Bethsaida. Verse 22, then he came to Bethsaida. Now, previously, the Lord has been ministering across the Sea of Galilee and Decapolis. You remember that he fed 4,000 people all at one time from just a few loaves of bread and a few fish, another notable miracle that the disciples had experienced. And he upbraided them on the way across the sea again because the disciples lacked the bread, and they lacked the understanding and the implications of the miracles of the bread and also the warning that Jesus gave them to beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, which is the leaven of unbelief. And so that was an example of their lack of spiritual sight or perception. Now they have crossed the lake again. They've come to the northern portion above uh, Capernaum to Bethsaida, which is located uh, right near the Jordan River where it comes into the Lake of Galilee. And he doesn't do any work here other than healing this blind man who was brought to him. And his disciples are really kind of on their way north to uh, the area of Caesarea Philippi. Now, Mark does not record it, But by this time, Jesus had preached a very severe warning to the cities of Chorazin, Capernaum, and Bethsaida because of their lack of repentance and faith. So this is likely why he doesn't spend any time here. He's going to go north and spend his time now largely with his disciples. Now, when they arrive there, We have a group of people bring to him a man who's blind. They want him to reach out and touch him. And what we have is an unusual two-stage healing, something we don't see anywhere else in his ministry. So this suggests to us a deeper spiritual truth that he wants to come across to his disciples. The first stage begins in verse 22. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So evidently there were some people in Bethsaida who believed that Jesus had healing power and they want this man to be healed. Again, we see that association between Jesus and his touching people, that touch of healing. Now, the Lord then takes this blind man by the hand and he leads him out of the town. And that suggests to us that he doesn't want the town people to be flocking to him and delay uh, his progress farther north, but he will take time to help this one man and his uh, blindness. Uh, now he's going to direct his attention to this person. He's going to touch him. This man's going to, to feel what Jesus is doing. And Jesus does something Uh, very unusual, he spits on the man's eyes. Now, if somebody did that to you today, you would probably haul off and whack them, uh, because this is something that would be offensive and repugnant to us today. But here again, it signals to the blind man who cannot see Jesus, that something is going to happen, and uh, it's going to happen to his eyes. He would probably be able to sense what had happened to him. And again, we mentioned last time the folklore of of saliva having some kind of healing power, and this might have come to his mind. So the idea that maybe something is going to happen with his eyesight. Then we read here that Jesus does touch the man's eyes, as he touched the ears of the deaf man, indicating the sensory object that needed his healing. And then something else uh, unusual happens. When he does all this, he asks the man a question. And he asks him if he saw anything. So usually when the Lord touched somebody or the Lord spoke something, he uh, the, the healing would be immediate and he wouldn't really say anything to the person until afterward. <clears throat> but here we have, again, something else going on that uh, uh, presents to us that he's wanting to teach us something further. So the man responds to Jesus in verse 24. He looked up, the idea there, opening his eyes, looking up, and he says, I see men like trees walking. Okay, that's kind of unusual. Uh, That's not how we usually see people, but that's how he begins uh, to see. He's able to see, but he's not able to see clearly. His vision is faulty, and he sees what appears to be men, but the shapes are all fuzzy, they're out of focus, and so they look like they're they're trees walking. This tells us something about the man it tells us that he was not born blind because he's able to distinguish men and trees. He knows what they both look like, although the vision's blurred here, that indicates to us that he, through either a disease or some kind of an accident, lost his sight. So here again, imagine that you're able to see, but all of a sudden, you're not able to see anything at all. You go blind over time. So imagine this man, as he's able to see something, is getting a little bit excited about what's happening to him. Now the second stage is described beginning at verse 25. Jesus again puts his hands on the man's eyes and makes him look up. And when that happens, his vision is restored and he sees everyone clearly. So, um, Jesus instructs him, after his vision is uh, complete and whole, not to go into the village and tell anybody what happened to him. Now, again, we've seen this over and over. Uh, Usually, Jesus tells people to keep it quiet. Once in a while, he tells them to go and tell others, So again, we'd have to assume here, Jesus is not there to minister. He doesn't want the crowds to come out and deter him. So this man is really not to say anything at this time. And again, people were having a lot of misconceptions about who Jesus was, and it wasn't the time now where he was going to do any teaching. So what does this miracle convey to us? What's the point here? Well, first of all, Again, we find that Jesus is compassionate towards individual people and their needs, whatever those needs might be. And since this man <clears throat> had gone blind, uh, it's very clear he would have had to resort to begging to make a living. And that would be very humiliating to anybody, even if you had a disability. And we see this from time to time. Maybe you've seen it. Um in a large city or maybe a place like Geneva, somebody might be out and they're, they're asking you for something and you feel sorry for them and so you give them a little bit of change. Um, uh, and this man would have had to live like that. We also see people bringing him, so they have some faith in what Jesus can do, even though in general the whole city seems to have rejected uh, the Lord Jesus. They haven't repented, they haven't believed in him, but there are some who did believe and brought this man to him, and Jesus showed compassion. But only Mark records this miracle, as well as the miracle of the deaf man. Uh, and these serve to illustrate something to us beyond just the miracle itself. <clears throat> um, the disciples need to move from their spiritual dullness to spiritual understanding. They needed to see who Jesus really was. And up to this point, although they had seen the miracles, seen the healings, seen the exorcism, heard his teaching, uh, even to a greater extent than the crowds, they still had made no connection between the dots as to who Jesus was. There's no confession. There's just kind of this awe and wondering, who is this man? But there hasn't been really an answer to that up to this point. Now, what happens from this point forward, they travel north toward Caesarea Philippi, and what happens uh, in their discourse really parallels what has happened in this miracle. So draw these parallels, if you will. Verse 22 and then verse 27 give to us the circumstances, the locations. Then if you look at verse 28, that parallels verses 23 and 24, where you have a, par- a partial uh, uh, and uh, uh, an insufficient sight. These people have an insufficient understanding of who Jesus is. They are not seeing fully uh, who the Lord is. Then you compare 25 and um, uh, uh, 28, you have the clear perception that's indicated there as this man comes to sight and then uh, the disciples make a confession where they have seen Jesus in his reality. And finally, Jesus commands both parties not to tell anybody what's happened here. Okay, so let's go through and see what Jesus instructs his disciples as they're on the way now to Caesarea Philippi. Um, Jesus' disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. All right, so where is this city? If you have a map in the back of your Bible, you're going to find this far north of the Sea of Galilee, about 25 miles and uh, it's due east from Tyre, so again, very near the populated Gentile areas. The Lord's apparently not doing ministering there, another retreat, so to speak, so he can teach his disciples. This was under the jurisdiction of Herod Philip, another son of Herod the Great. And under Herod, the city was expanded. It was renamed not only to honor the Caesar of Rome, but his son, Philip. So Philip renamed it kind of after himself, Philippi. Now, Jesus is going not to the city, but the towns around the city. Uh, Maybe he did a little work here, but nothing's recorded and there's no uh, healing, there's no teaching that we have any idea of here. He's, again, going to be with the disciples and be teaching them. Now, along the way, on the road, that's the idea of on the way, Jesus is doing some instruction. And he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? Now, the disciples have been out uh on at least one mission, maybe another one, where they've done preaching, teaching, healing, things of that nature, and Jesus wasn't with them, so they're hearing what people have to say about Jesus, what they think about him, and now Jesus is wanting them to convey to him, what are people thinking? What do they say about me? What do they believe? And the disciples would would understand from their communication with these different towns and villages what people were saying about the Lord Jesus. So they convey these different opinions about um, who Jesus is. Now, if you read down through here, obviously the consensus is that Jesus is a prophet. Some people think he's John the Baptist. Well, Uh, John the Baptist was executed. And of course, we know Herod Antibus erroneously thought he was raised from the dead. So some people obviously were taking that view. He's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others said Elijah. Again, Elijah is one of the most noteworthy of the prophets. People have looked up to him. Uh, Elijah went up into heaven. He never actually died. So maybe it's Elijah who's come back. Others suggested, well, he's one of the prophets, which would, again, suggest to us they believe they return to earth in the person of Jesus. So the general consist, uh, consensus was partially true, but it was inadequate. Jesus was a prophet of God. Uh, he uh, prophesied later on. But more importantly, he was the son of God. And that thought is not even mentioned by the disciples. So like the blind man who at first saw partially, the people were only seeing Jesus partially. And we would have to say from what we information we have right now, that the disciples uh, were not seeing him fully at this point either because there had been no profession of faith on their part. So Uh, People today perceive Jesus in all sorts of faulty ways as well that are inadequate. Uh, Some think he was a prophet. That would be true. He was a good teacher. That also is true. He was a founder of a great legend. That's true. Uh, A man who became a god. Well, that's not quite right. And some believe he was an avatar who promoted the coming age of Aquarius. Aquarius. There's all kinds of ideas out there of who Jesus is, but they're skewed, they're not full, and these are all misconceptions of his true identity. So, as they continue, Jesus then confronts the disciples and he asks them, point blank, who do you say that I am? Now, Jesus has not come out directly and ever said, who he was. He's given all kinds of evidence uh, concerning his true identity, but he wants people to come to the proper conclusion of who he is on their own by hearing what he says, seeing what he does. So they have to exercise faith. They have to believe. Now Peter is the one who's going to answer this question, and he really kind of is answering on behalf of all the disciples at this point. Up to this time, uh, his name has only been mentioned a couple times, but from this point forward, he's going to be uh, uh, cited 16 times, and that same pattern is followed by Matthew and Luke. So he's becoming the spokesman for the whole group. And oftentimes what Peter says is what everybody else believes. Now, Mark reports their assessment of Jesus through the statement of Peter very succinctly. We believe you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Now, you know the title Uh, Christ, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew uh, Mashiach. And it connotes a person who is anointed by God, who is chosen by God for a specific task. That person is then consecrated to service and empowered to complete the task that has been assigned. Now, it originally referred to anyone, who was uh, anointed to a high position. But by the day of Jesus, the Messiah was viewed as a coming political and national figure who would lead Israel to a place of glory and prominence. Kind of like people uh, think of Donald Trump today in America. Going to bring us to a place of glory and prominence. That was the idea back then. Now, the idea of a suffering Messiah, whoa, we don't want to go that direction. Now, that is found in the Old Testament. Um, You can go to passages which you can derive that thought about the coming Messiah. And some of the passages are so disparate that there were people that believed in that day that there were actually two messiahs, one who would suffer and one who would be a prince. But the idea that the messiah was a suffering one wasn't very prevalent, wasn't very popular. Some people may not even heard about it. And so for the messiah that they just confessed to come out and say what he's going to say would have just been so shocking, so amazing. uh, It would have been almost impossible for them to believe it. Many in that day would probably not have perceived the Messiah being the Son of God as Mark begins his epistle with. And Mark um, does not cite that aspect of the confession, although Matthew and Luke do. So disciples do believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that he is God in flesh. However, We're going to see their view of Messiah would actually reflect the thinking of the day. It's got to be changed. Because of this prevailing view, Jesus commands them then not to tell anybody about this confession. Verse 30, he strictly, very strongly warned them that they should tell no one about him because they don't understand yet what that all means. So they can't be preaching it at this point. Now, at this juncture, um, Jesus begins to teach the disciples about his mission. What's involved in accomplishing the Lord's plan of uh, redemption? So he's got to tell them about his passion and about his resurrection. And again, here we see their lack of perception, uh, which is understandable, but it's something that has to change because although they see one thing, they're still very unclear about a lot of other things. So the last thing we find here is that Jesus reveals his mission And the disciples see, but they don't see. All right, so what does Jesus do in verse 31? He begins to teach about his suffering and his death. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And again, be reminded, this would have been divorced in their minds about any coming Messiah who would make Israel glorious again. This wasn't in the plan book. So Jesus began, and this, uh, this, in, this uh, indicates to us, he's beginning to teach them something new, something they uh, had never heard before, something unexpected, and really something shocking and something that they don't want to accept, at least not at first. Now, Jesus had hinted about this, um, but now we're told he speaks this openly. He speaks it clearly in verse 32. There's there's no uh, figures of speech. There's no parables. He just puts it out to them because they have to know it. They have to understand it. So he's very plain, very clear. And also note that he says... This is something that must happen. It has to happen to fulfill God's redemptive plan for humanity. Note again that Jesus, as he goes on here, refrains from the use of that term Christ or Messiah. He says, The Son of Man must suffer. Not the Christ, not the Messiah. So he's kind of uh, avoiding that um, normative thinking about the Messiah because it's not correct, it's not true, and, and softening it a little bit by alluding to himself as the Son of Man. Now, at this time in biblical history, there would not have been a strong relationship between the usage of that title, Son of Man, and Messiah. But again, in the Old Testament, you can indicate that because in uh, Daniel chapter 7, there's one called the Son of Man who comes, who destroys the last uh, uh, government and sets up his own rule and reigns on his throne. The Son of Man does that, the Ancient of Days, which of course uh, affiliates it with something divine. Um, this was a favorite name that God designated the prophet Ezekiel with, using it over 90 times in that prophecy. So there was a slight connection, but it becomes stronger and stronger as you move forward in the Lord's progressive revelation. Now, Jesus uses this title of himself 81 times. It's his favorite self-designation, and nobody else calls him by this name. So again, to avoid the common misunderstanding around the idea of messiahship, he begins uh, speaking of himself as the Son of Man, identifying with those who he came to save. So what then does he reveal about his suffering? A Messiah who suffers. Well, four things. First of all, he has to be rejected. Uh, by well he he suffers many things. we will be seeing all of that. you know it from your own study of the scriptures, false accusations, beatings an unjust unjust trials, a scourging, uh, the derision of a once uh, supportive crowd, then his crucifixion so the again, the idea of suffering uh, was not in the minds of the people when it came to their Messiah. But you go back to Isaiah 53, there it is, pretty clear. He also needs to be rejected by the Jewish ruling authorities, some of whom we've run into. But the elders here, uh, this was a, a a lay group of leaders of a civil nature in the uh, Jewish, Jerusalem community. They would be nobles and rulers. Some of them would be sitting on the high court of the Jews called the Sanhedrin. The chief priest would also be there, Caiaphas, Annas, the priestly families. And then the scribes, we've met them. They're the experts of the law, some of whom were Pharisees. These are all the ones who will try Jesus and bring him to, uh, to uh, a Pilate and want him to be put to, get, to, to death. And again, these different groups, they didn't agree about a whole lot of stuff. But when it came to Jesus and the rejection of who he was, they were all in agreement. Then it says he must be killed. Of course, we know this refers to crucifixion, the common death of criminals. Not a noble way of going out, and the worst possible way to die in that time in history. But Jesus always closed out his teachings with the resurrection. He will rise again after three days. So uh, that was something that just totally escaped the, uh, the, the disciples' <clears throat> Um, uh, this was incomprehensible to them, and they never really were fully impacted by this until it actually happened. So their perception is clouded all the way uh, until the resurrection of Christ. But they're growing. They're getting more and more information about who Jesus really is. Now, the response of Peter shows that he and the disciples did not see the fullness of Christ. And Jesus has to rebuke them uh, for their response. So, what happened? Well, he spoke this word openly, but then Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him, a very strong term. This is the same term Jesus used when he rebuked the demons and cast them out. And it's the same word he'll use toward the disciples when he rebukes them. So he's just kind of railing on Jesus uh, that this isn't going to happen and we're not going to let it happen. And that was kind of his attitude. And he's not speaking just for um, himself, but the disciples as well. His response is absolutely wrong. But as I said, it's understandable uh, because of the perception that people had of the Messiah being a political king or ruler who will set up his earthly kingdom right now and put, uh, Israel back, uh, in, in a high place in the world. But how could this happen if the prince, the king, the Messiah is dead? So that's the furthest uh, thing from their mind. Now, uh, Peter, I'm sure he's motivated out of fear and love, but his attempt to dissuade Jesus from his mission is more in line with Satan's will than with God's will. So the response of Jesus to all this is very severe as well. In verse 13, but when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. So why does he look at the disciples? Well, because they are in agreement, not only with what Peter believes about who the Messiah is, but apparently they must be thinking the same way Peter thinks about what should happen to their Messiah. So when he addresses Peter, he's really rebuking all of them. And he says, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. One author wrote, by opposing the will of God for his Messiah, Peter and those who agree with him are acting as spokesmen of God's ultimate enemy. Of course, that's Satan. That's the devil. And as such, Jesus' words are, get behind me, Satan. So I'm sure that that kind of probably shocked Peter a little bit. And this is very similar to what Jesus told the devil in his own temptation, away with you, Satan. It also reminds us of Satan's objective in taking away the seed of God's word in the parable of the soils. So the disciples, with this attitude, were rejecting God's will by thinking in totally human terms rather than being mindful of the purpose and the plan of God, which Jesus was conveying to them. So they were guilty of a human perspective, incapable of grasping the divine purpose. They saw one truth about Jesus, but they were still blind about other truths about Jesus, and especially this goal of his very mission. So what then can we draw from uh, what jesus is teaching through that healing of the blind man and then the confession of the disciples well first of all spiritually speaking we're all like that blind man aren't we we need jesus to open our eyes to the truth of who he really is the disciples came to understand the necessary truth that jesus was the christ the son of god That that is something you have to believe if you're going to be saved, and that's the starting point for your growth as a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Yet there are people today who may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're saved. Some religious systems teach that truth, but they divorce it from the work of Christ alone as the source of our salvation and that falls shy of uh, what salvation is by grace, not by works. So we have to believe that Jesus is the son of God, but he's also the savior of men. He came to die in our place uh, uh, for sins that we've committed, not anything he committed. And his sacrifice alone is sufficient payment for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And his resurrection validated his work, and prove he had the power to save us from sin and death and hell. But once we see Jesus for who he is in that way, we begin a journey of spiritual sight being perfected. We begin to see more and more and more of who he is, what he is like, and we believe that, we become conformed to that, we apply it to our own lives. We're constantly doing that, from the point of salvation to the point of glorification. <clears throat> and finally, let's never be guilty of not accepting God's plan, whether it is his sovereign plan for the ages and his coming k- kingdom or his individual plan for your life and for mine. We have to be submissive and receptive to his will Uh, Even if there are times where we don't fully understand it or we're confused, we're going to learn, as the disciples did, that following Jesus will at times involve suffering and selflessness and humility and always service to others, not ourselves. So may the Lord help us consistently grow in our understanding of and obedience to his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're again thankful today that the disciples confessed Jesus for who he was, the Messiah, the Son of God. And even though they didn't fully understand that, Lord, over time, as they put their faith and believed in Christ, they would grow in that understanding. And we pray, Lord, you help us to realize that we too, although we have been given the sight Of salvation in Christ alone. Uh, We still don't see everything fully and clearly. We have to grow into these things. Help us to be receptive to them. Uh, Help us, Lord, to uh, believe them and apply them to our life. Lord, we just pray you'll use this to help us uh, realize that uh, growing in this kind of perception is something that's going to take place our whole life. We just pray you'll bless us now as we come before your table, Lord, and be thankful again that you've made all this possible to us as your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. bread. While the uh, fellows are are bringing this in, getting it ready, uh, let's just be reminded once again that Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed of God. He was anointed to uh, fulfill the Lord's plan of salvation for you and I. And uh, when we come to him as our Savior, that's the beginning of a journey. That's the beginning of spiritual growth. That's the initial stage that the disciples came to as we read this morning. But there's a whole lot more out there for them to understand and learn, even as there is for us. Many of us have been saved for many, many years. Uh, we certainly ought to be mature Christians by now. But we never get to the point where we can say, we know it all or that we're holier than somebody else, or that we, we have it all